Well, welcome to Navarra Live. It's good to be back. I'm Michael Walker, and I'm joined this evening by Emma Dabbery. Emma, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you? Very well. Where are you joining me from this evening? I know last time you were you were quite far away. Are you still in Southeast Asia? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm no longer in Southeast Asia. I'm on the Kent coast. Very nice. Um, coming up on tonight's show, Nadine Doris. Um, she's still squatting in her position as an MP. Um, Rishi Sunak has blamed the NHS backlog on strikes, but someone was on hand to call him out on it. And an interesting debate on policing and crime, which features a friend of the show. Here's today's first story. Donald Trump has been charged with attempting to overturn the 2020 US presidential election. The former president and current frontrunner for the Republican nomination will appear in federal court tomorrow. This was special counsel Jack Smith announcing the charges to the world's media. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with conspiring to defraud the United States, conspiring to disenfranchise voters, and conspiring and attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. The indictment was issued by a grand jury of citizens here in the District of Columbia, and it sets forth the crimes charged in detail. I encourage everyone to read it in full. The attack on our nation's capital on January 6th, 2021, was an unprecedented assault on the seat of American democracy. As described in the indictment, it was fueled by lies. Lies by the defendant targeted at obstructing a bedrock function of the U.S. government, the nation's process of collecting, counting, and certifying the results of the presidential election. So as Smith said there, Trump faces four charges. They are conspiracy to defraud the United States, conspiracy to obstruct Congress certifying an election, the actual obstruction of Congress certifying an election, and conspiracy against the right to vote. The indictment alleges that the former president deliberately targeted seven states, so Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, New Mexico, Arizona, and Nevada, to fraudulently overturn their election results. To do this, he enlisted six co-conspirators who are described but not named in the indictment. They include four attorneys, a Justice Department official, and a political advisor. Despite having been repeatedly told by state and federal officials that the election was secure, the indictment alleges that Trump continued to assert fraud in the seven states. He also repeatedly asserted falsely that the vice president, Mike Pence, had the power to unilaterally overturn the result. On January the 6th, 2021, Trump repeated those assertions to a large crowd of angry protesters who had converged on Washington, D.C. in this speech. I hope Mike is going to do the right thing. I hope so. I hope so. Because if Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. All he has to do, all in, this is, this is from the number one or certainly one of the top constitutional lawyers in our country. He has the absolute right to do it. We're supposed to protect our country, support our country, support our Constitution and protect our Constitution. States want to revote. The states got defrauded. They were given false information. They voted on it. Now they want to recertify. They want it back. All Vice President Pence has to do is send it back to the states to recertify. And we become president, and you are the happiest people. And we fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. We're going to 
walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue. And we're going to the Capitol and we're going to try and give you know, the Democrats are hopeless. They're never voting for anything. Not even one vote. But we're going to try and give our Republicans the weak ones, because the strong ones don't need any of our help. We're tr going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. So those last remarks are alleged to have instigated the riot that followed an attempt the indictment claims to disrupt the election certification proceedings taking place inside the Capitol. The crowd from the rally advanced towards the Capitol over a period of two hours, eventually breaking into the building. Mike Pence refused to fraudulently attempt to overrule the election, a fact that Trump tweeted about. The indictment states that a minute after that tweet, the Secret Service evacuated Mike Pence after rioters had chanted, quote, hang Mike Pence. Trump is alleged to then have repeatedly refused to issue messages to calm the crowd, instead throughout the afternoon, repeating his false claims. That violence led directly to the deaths of five people. One was a Capitol Police officer who died a day after being overpowered and beaten by rioters. The other four were members of the crowd, including one who was shot by the police as she entered the Capitol. And a further four officers who defended the building that day would later um, die by suicide. Trump is the first US president in history to face criminal charges. And while this is the third set of charges he has faced this year, they're by far the most serious. In March, he was charged in New York over hush money paid to the adult film performer Stormy Daniels. And in June, he was charged with 37 felonies relating to documents stored in his Mar-a-Lago home. A further three charges were later added. But even if he's convicted, Trump may still be able to run for president. The Constitution does debar candidates who've been convicted of, quote, engaging in insurrection or rebellion, but that is not a charge being laid against the former president. A central question in the case will be Trump's state of mind. The indictment is clear that American free speech laws protect even false claims of election fraud. The case that prosecutors will have to prove is that he knowingly asserted falsehoods and did so with the intention of derailing the election results. In the meantime, his competitors for the Republican presidential nomination are queuing up to defend him. Ron DeSantis issued this statement. As president, I will end the weaponization of government, replace the FBI director, and ensure a single standard of justice for all Americans. While I've seen reports, I've not read the indictment. I do, though, believe we need to enact reforms so that Americans have the right to remove cases from Washington, D.C. to their home districts. Washington, D.C. is a swamp, and it is unfair to have to stand trial before a jury that is reflective of the swamp mentality. One of the reasons our country is in decline is the politicization of the rule of law. No more excuses. I will end the weaponization of the federal government. So Ron DeSantis, they're suggesting it's unfair that this case will be tried in D.C., which is a it's not really a state, but is, an, is, is a region, um, which is very much anti-Trump. Um, Vivek Ramaswamy is a biotech millionaire who's been gaining ground on DeSantis in the race for the nomination, or at least for the second place um, for the nomination. He released this video on social media. It's another sad moment in our country's history. The 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump, has yet again been indicted by the Biden DOJ a political party in power that is now repeatedly using police force to indict and arrest and potentially eliminate its political opponents from competition. This is a politicized prosecution. It is a political persecution through prosecution now in a third indictment just in a matter of months against 
the person who is still at present the lead contender in the Republican primary for U.S. president. It would be easier for me if Donald Trump were eliminated from competition. That's not how I want to win. This is not about politics to me. This is about first principles. We do not want to become a country where the party in power is able to use banana republic-like tactics to eliminate its political opponents. Yet I'm sad to say that's exactly where we are. Mike Pence is also running for the Republican nomination, and he's not defending Trump, allegedly accused of being, quote, too honest by Trump in the indictment. Pence said this about the charges. Today's indictment serves as an important reminder. Anyone who puts himself over the Constitution should never be president of the United States. He says our country is more important than one man. Our Constitution is more important than any one man's career. On January the 6th, former President Trump demanded that I choose between him and the Constitution. I chose the Constitution and I always will. I'm a message which sounds pretty reasonable, but probably won't be particularly popular with the Republican selectorate. And what about Donald Trump? Last night, his campaign posted this statement. This is nothing more than the latest corrupt chapter in the continued pathetic attempt by the Biden crime family and their weaponized Department of Justice to interfere with the 2024 presidential election, in which President Trump is the undisputed frontrunner and leading by substantial margins. The lawlessness of these prosecutions of President Trump and his supporters is reminiscent of Nazi Germany in the 1930s, the former Soviet Union, and other authoritarian dictatorial regimes. President Trump always followed the law and the Constitution with advice from many highly accomplished attorneys. Um, Trump also posted this message to his supporters. Thank you to everyone. I have never had so much support on anything before. This unprecedented indictment of a former highly successful president and leading candidate by far in both the Republican Party and the 2024 general election has awoken the world to the corruption, scandal and failure that has taken place in the United States for the past three years. America is a nation in decline, but we will make it great again greater than ever before. I love you all. Um, I'm joined now by the Progressive International's David Adler, who is speaking to us from New York. You're looking very dapper. Um, thank you for joining us. Um, is this going to be the end of Donald Trump? Will this finally bring the guy down? It's hard to overstate uh, the, the unprecedented nature of the circumstance uh, in which we find U.S. democracy. And by the way, that's not to say that it should be unprecedented. The special prosecutor there described this as, you know, never before has a U.S. president faced criminal charges uh, after leaving office. Probably that should have been uh, something that, that the U.S. could have done a bit more of through truth reconciliation committees, through thinking about what it meant to defraud U the United States by, for example, telling lies that led to the U.S. war and invasion of Iraq. So it's not to say that, you know, Trump is a criminal highest above all other criminals who have occupied the highest office uh, in the United States. But given that it's so unprecedented, it's very difficult to make predictions. So there's things that we know and things that we don't know. The thing that we know for sure is that Trump is in really deep shit. I mean, this, uh, you played some great clips uh, at the outset of the of this segment. <clears throat> Certainly looks like a crime scene, but there's a range of other uh, cases that are now hanging over Donald Trump's head that all uh, are going to be sort of uh, held, uh, transpiring over the course of the next uh, 10, 12 months in the run-up to the GOP nomination and in the 2024 election. So that is one thing we do know, is that the hill is steep for Donald Trump to climb towards any kind of clearance of his name, uh, extricating himself from these criminal charges. Uh, the things that we, that, that we really don't know, we really don't know how that impacts even his chance of running for president. Constitution, as you mentioned, does not bar even an incarcerated person 
from running for president. So Trump could run from behind bars, let alone run uh, under threat of conviction or with conviction that isn't, that's still under appeal. Uh, and the thing we also don't know is how this is going to reflect in the eyes, in the hearts and souls of his supporters. I mean, the fact that we are going to see uh, a jury trial of Donald Trump uh, could be is totally sort of kaleidoscopic in terms of its consequences for U.S. democracy. So people will say on the one side, this is the institutions working as they should, and maybe as they should more and more towards accountability for our presidents and as they do in other countries. For example, we recently saw the Lula administration in Brazil bar Jair Bolsonaro from running for office for a period of time, given his role in the events of January 8th, the copycat insurrection in Brasilia's Three Powers Plaza. Right, But there's another sense in which we really are poking, prodding, and uh, you know, playing with fire when it comes to um, uh, laying out accusations that are highly polarized, politicized, in which the interpretation uh, depends so much on the partisan lens uh, through which it's being uh, fract- fragmented. A primer on on the American legal system for a, for a UK audience. I mean, the complaint from the Republicans, which seems most reasonable. Now, not many of their complaints seem particularly reasonable, but is that this case is going to be heard in. DC, the District of Columbia, so you know where the White House and where Congress is, which is a relatively liberal state. Now, it does seem to me that that you know it's going to be hard to pick an unbiased um, jury to try this guy. You know, he's the most divisive guy in America. So presumably, the state you choose to try him is going to be quite relevant. How does it get decided that this is heard in in DC? Well, it's just about where the where the case is filed. Uh, so that's all. That has to do nothing to do with choosing your jurisdiction necessarily. I don't think that DOJ was was trying to square him into a particular area. What we can say about the jury selection is going to be extremely contentious. And it opens every step of this process. We're in the indictment process now, which is already extremely contentious, controversial, and potentially counterproductive, whatever depends on who you ask, right? But every single step of this process, jury selection being one of the most important, is going to lead to hundreds of conspiracy theories, further investigations, counter-investigations, uh, snooping around. I mean, this is going to be a long, drawn out, and extremely challenging process that presents further uh, threats, challenges, dangers to the same democratic institutions that it intends to protect. And so, I'm not. This is what I'm trying to emphasize. We really don't know how this whole process will play out. You listen to the speeches of the the prosecutors who are making a clear and calm case, like this is a crime and we are taking steps to ensure accountability for those crimes. And you think, hmm, that makes sense. And you listen to the Republican contenders saying, this is a witch hunt. This is totally uh, controversial. Why are other crimes on their side not being prosecuted according to the Biden crime family? And you think there's probably a lot of people listening to that speech who find it way more compelling and way more attuned to their pre-existing convictions and commitments. And so it's just tough to see how Uh, any of these legal processes drive us toward a reconciliation, drive us toward a a more robust expression of democratic institutions and the constitution that it's supposed to be representing uh, instead of deepening, spiraling out that kind of polarization. That doesn't mean we should be against those processes, right? It just means that we can speak about the facts of the trajectory of these cases, which are going to inflame uh, the very real problems that beset U.S. democracy today. Presumably there's like a, a de facto time limit on how long this trial needs to last. Because in 18 months, I mean, 
Donald Trump is the faraway favourite to be the Republican candidate, currently neck and neck in the polls with Biden. If they are neck and neck in the polls, that means the electoral system in the Electoral College means that Trump is quite likely to become president. So therefore, in 18 months, Trump could be president and he can presumably pardon himself or completely change the priorities of the Department of Justice so that they're not investigating him. I mean, are, are the people prosecuting Trump aware of all of that and so therefore are desperately trying to get all of this done and dusted within 18 months? The most ungenerous reading of what's happening from the Biden administration is that they're just scared shitless of Donald Trump. If you look at the polls right now, uh, Trump said he's leading in the polls, but it's almost neck and neck on some of these poll readings, right? Um, Joe Biden, despite efforts to uh, reduce inflation, and <clears throat> boost <clears throat> lower un unemployment, boost uh, boost uh, wages at the bottom end, those numbers, uh, that kind of economic performance at the macro level, which people would have expected, oh, well, voters are going to feel that those pocketbook effects and, and, and rally out for Joe Biden. They're just not materializing. Uh, and Trump is so resistant. I mean, we've never seen a kind of Teflon Don uh, situation like this, where no matter what you're throwing at the guy, he, his poll numbers refuse to fall. And so I think there is a level of desperation. And it's clear that none of these charges are going to impact his trajectory towards president. Like I said, these trials could go on for a long time. That's one thing. Their dates are already set for 2024, but they could go on for longer than that. There are appeal processes. And even in case of conviction, the guy can still run. And there's he'll have no qualms with this kind of question of pardoning himself if he were to enter the presidency. So there's a game of cat and mouse here. No one knows where it's going or what the consequences will be. But the social consequences, I think, above all, should be concerning to us as much as the political consequences for uh, prospects for candidacies and elections and nominations. We said that, I think, uh, according to the Constitution, formally the only crimes that debar one from being a president are sedition and insurrection. So he's not being charged with either of those things, although I suppose one could make a claim um, that it wouldn't be a ridiculous thing to charge him of, but th th those are not part of the charges. What is the limit? Does that mean there is nothing, that there is no sequence of events that could stop him running for president? I mean, imagine he goes to prison. Could he, if he goes to prison in the next 18 months, could he be running for president and be elected president as a prisoner? Donald Trump can run for president and can be elected president as a prisoner convicted of felony crimes in the United States. Wow. And then can he pardon himself from prison, presumably? Uh, I, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, I really have to tell you, like this, this you, you've got hundreds of constitutional scholars across the country who are opening their skulls and scratching their brains, looking for the, like I said, kaleidoscopic consequences of this indictment, of all the convictions that potentially hang over Donald Trump's head. Um, you know, I'm as surprised as you are that the actual crimes that, that would, or the actual uh, accusations or the indictment that would, uh, in case of conviction, uh, prevent Donald Trump from running for president. I mean, you're going to pull out these bazookas and sort of start launching these missiles towards the Trump campaign and trying to weaken it. Uh, creating accountability, but the ultimate you know, weapon still left on the table that would actually prevent a ring for office. So uh, what are we really doing here? It's not totally clear. I think people come at it from totally different angles. There's only one thing of which we can be guaranteed, that the partisan lens in the United States is so thick that on MSNBC at this very moment, you are seeing people just cheering confetti. This is a day of glorious redemption and uh, revenge for the events of January 6th. And on equal opposite networks of the right, they are talking about the death of democracy and a Republican flames uh, and already preparing a kind of a counter uh, proposal for how they might get their own revenge 
for the kind of legal action that's being taken against Donald Trump. And that should be something that more people are paying attention to because it's going to be the most determinative uh, consequence uh, for the future of U.S. democracy is how the spiraling social consequences of this indictment are then fragmented or fractured through the thick, increasingly thick partisan lenses that determine people's interpretation of reality, all aspects of it, from the economy to the culture wars to the case of Donald Trump. Next story. Rishi Sunak has appeared on LBC where he answered questions from the public. But before being tackled by callers, the Prime Minister was asked by host Nick Ferrari about NHS waiting lists. Yeah, Let me just get this figure out, Prime yeah. It was 7.2 million when you came to yeah, office. Yeah, now it's 7.9, people take. It, it, yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. You, it's but if going you look the at, wrong way. Yeah, right. but if you look at what happened, then, I'll just be totally honest with everybody. If you look at what happened, we were actually making progress. We eliminated the number of uh, two-year waiters. People are waiting a really long time. Uh, we practically eliminated the number of people waiting one and a half years. But the reason, and we were making progress on bringing the overall numbers down, what happened? We had right. industrial action. Okay. We've got strikes. Now, and look, I've, I've taken a very firm but fair point of view. We've accepted recommendations from independent pay review bodies. I'm delighted that the nurses and a million other NHS workers accepted the government's uh, pay offer. Yes. And they're working really hard to deliver for patients. But unfortunately, we still have groups of people who are not doing that and they're striking. And that is a reason that the waiting lists are going up. It's as simple as that. I just want to be honest with you. Yes, they are going up. That's the reason they're going up. It's not because we're not putting more money in or doing lots of different things, which no doubt we can talk about on the show. The waiting lists are going up because of industrial action. It's as simple as that. Is it really as simple as that, Rishi? No, it's it's not. Spoiler, we're going to go get into the evidence in a moment. First, though, here's what happened when Olivia, a junior doctor, confronted the Prime Minister. My experience is that frontline services are so stretched that we're in the position that you have had almost all healthcare workers going on strike this year. How do you think your refusal to negotiate with us improves morale or standards of care? Well, Olivia, thanks for everything you and your colleagues do. You obviously do a fantastic job. What I would say is, look, over a million NHS workers have accepted the government's pay deal many of them on salaries and incomes far lower than consultants and indeed Olivia and her colleagues. That's just the reality of it. And I'm really grateful to them, the million NHS workers, you know, the several unions, all of whom accepted the government's offer, and and the millions of other public sector workers like teachers and others who have also accepted the government's offer based on recommendations from the independent pay review bodies, not the government's view. This is an independent recommendation. Government accepted it. All these other unions and millions of public sector workers, including NHS, have accepted it. Now, there are a few exceptions, including junior doctors and consultants. That's what's causing the waiting list to go up. I don't think that's right. I would say to them, I'm very grateful and respectful of the incredible job you do. But we all have a shared mission to bring the waiting list down. I've done my bit by backing the NHS with a long-term workforce plan and record funding. And I would ask people to think about accepting what is an independent offer and and coming to come and do the thing that I know you want to do, which is serve patients. I've done my bit. I mean, I just find it so depressing that after COVID, I say this quite often on this show, but I do think it is significant and needs to be remembered that we clap for these people every Thursday. There was, I think, an implicit pledge, an implicit promise made to NHS workers and all carers that we would value their work properly when the pandemic was over. And now you've got a prime minister lecturing a junior doctor saying, God, just accept a real terms pay cut. Get over it. Get over it. You know? This is your problem. Your problem that there's a waiting list, which is increasing. It's not their problem, by the way, that the waiting lists are increasing. We are now going to look at the data. We'll start with the waiting lists 
themselves. So according to the House of Commons Library, the overall NHS waiting list have been rapidly climbing since 2020. But before that, they'd been steadily climbing ever since the Tories took power in 2010. Sunak is right that some waiting lists have been going down, and those are the ones he prefers to talk about. As these graphs from Full Fact show, the number of people waiting a year or more has gone down over the last two years, but there weren't that many people on those lists in the first place. Whereas the number of people waiting for up to a year, the first two graphs, has grown. And there was no point in the last two years where that number has significantly fallen. The nurses first went on strike in December last year, while the doctors kicked off their industrial action this March, so the trajectory of the waiting list can hardly be blamed on them. But what about the longer-term trend? Well, the Tories argue that during their 13-year stint in power, the NHS budget has been protected from cuts, but that's a technicality, because while budgets haven't been slashed, NHS spending hasn't kept up with demographic changes, specifically an ageing and increasingly sick population. This graph from the FT shows how badly the UK has kept up with health spending compared to other countries. The dotted line shows health spending as a share of GDP averaged across the US, Canada and several Western European countries. As you can see, funding from Thatcher's and Major's governments fell well below the line. The new Labour government that followed increased funding until we hit the average in the last few years of their tenure. But the Tories have gradually dragged us to the bottom again. That freeze on funding has had a huge impact on pay. Again, from the FT, the graph shows how badly nurses have been doing since 2010. By this year, their real terms median weekly pay is now roughly where it was in 2002. Part of those cuts were also to capital expenditure. So that's investment in new hospitals, equipment and services. This graph shows the number of hospital beds per thousand people. Again, um, we are towards the bottom compared to our peer countries. This one can't be laid entirely at the feet of the Tories, though. The number of beds have been falling since 2000, but that fall accelerated under the Tories who took us to the bottom of the ranking. So years of underinvestment explains why the backlog for treatment increased from 2010 onwards and why the NHS was in a very weak position to deal with and then recover from COVID-19. And the Tories screwing the NHS is nothing new. Under Labour, NHS waiting lists fell. After steep climbs in the Thatcher years, they went up again under the Tories rocketing during COVID. It's a similar case for A&E waiting lists. Under Labour, almost 100% of people were seen within four hours. Under the Tories, that figure dropped to around 50%. So don't give me industrial action is pushing up the waiting list, right? It's a simple story. The Tories pushed up waiting lists and they do that every time they get into government. Uh, this is, if you're looking at correlations, the correlation between the Tories getting into government and waiting lists going up is very, very obvious. You, know, you don't have to be particularly good at social science to work out that's what's going on. Let's go back to junior Dr. Olivia for her reaction to Sunak's claims. I think it's... Amazing that we're blaming the increasing in waiting lists on doctors um, going on strike. Um, you're losing staff because we're undervalued. And it's not just doctors, it's everyone. We're all leaving. A happy workforce is your responsibility. You're the prime minister. You're the government. Your staff aren't happy. That's your fault. And ultimately, that's not good for patients because retaining staff is one of the bedrocks of making sure that you have good patient safety. You cannot keep the NHS running with the staff shortages that it has. Right. And to keep us here, you have to keep us happy. That is your job. Right. None of us are happy. I mean, that was so well put. Like, the idea that as a government, you can both increase healthcare outcomes and go to war with the workforce who are responsible for positive healthcare outcomes is just completely bonkers, right? 
So obviously, under Thatcher, when the government decided to go to war with the miners, one of the reasons they went to war with the miners is because they wanted to shrink the mining industry in the UK. They thought that this was a source of militancy. They wanted to move to a post-industrial economy. So they were like, it doesn't matter if we completely make these people miserable, make them not want to work in mines, make them uh, completely demoralised. That doesn't matter because our whole strategy for moving forward the economy means that we won't really need miners anymore. But at the, at the moment, what you're seeing is a government who is saying, you're the problem. Uh, they're, they're happy to demoralise the NHS workforce. Now, Rishi Sunak is always talking about, oh, the nurses accept 5%, why can't you? Now, the process by which the nurses ended up accepting 5%, I think will have demoralised a lot of people in that workforce. So there were lots of very close votes. You had different unions going different ways. It was all a bit of a mess. I don't think anyone can argue that that was a process which has sort of left nurses happy and satisfied. It was a painful, drawn-out process with a lot of emotional blackmail saying, if you don't accept this, bunch loads of people are going to die, right? It wasn't the kind of process that brought the workers along with the government. And what we're seeing here is the government going to war with a workforce, which is necessary, which is the key input to what they think is one of their most important outcomes, which is bringing down waiting lists and increasing the health of the population. It, it just seems completely bizarre to me. To me, he's just really like the mundane, banal, like face of evil. Like, I honestly don't, I, I, I really struggle to watch that interview. And then his odious, I'll just be honest with you, as he proceeds to just be so, like he's just so inherently dishonest. And it's like everything that comes out of his mouth is 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 untrue. And I mean... I know we're talking about the um, like crisis in the NHS and um, his attempt to kind of uh, manipulate people into thinking that the um, the 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 cause of this are the are the are the are the striking workers, and it's like a huge issue. But I'm also just as I'm looking at him, <laughs> I'm just thinking as well just about the existential threat that he poses that he, he and his policies pose um actually like to to humanity and I don't want to sound it's not like hy hyperbole but I'm just thinking about like what he's doing in the North Sea with the gas and oil licenses and I just I just find him really difficult to watch because I I, I actually yeah as I said he's he's so boring as well and I think that actually works in his favor he's so boring that it's actually quite difficult to listen to him often um, which doesn't really matter because usually he's just like everything that he's saying is like completely dishonest anyway. But I really think like what he's doing, um, the, 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 the policies that he is enacting, um, are just like destroying the country and without sounding too dramatic, like just a kind of direct threat to the, to, to the, to the world. Like, yeah, I, I, I struggle to watch him. Clearly, the Tories think that the strongest argument they have in their dispute with the doctors is that nurses and other healthcare workers accepted that 5% rise. I mean, do you, I, I see why they keep going back to that. And uh, I mean, in a way, is it a shame for the doctors that the nurses did end up, as I say, in very fracturous circumstances, accepting that 5% offer? I mean, I don't blame them. They were under a, a shed loads of emotional blackmail. They were being told, if you don't accept this, loads of people are going to die. Um, there was lots of division within the nursing movement, they ended up accepting 5%. Do you think it is going to be difficult for the doctors to achieve an amount which is much higher than that after the nurses have gone for 5%? I suspect that even if the nurses 
So, okay, this is like, this provides a convenient um, kind of uh, excuse for him to keep returning to, um, that they, that the nurse has accepted it. And also it does the work very effectively of kind of pitting people against each other as well. Um, However, even if they hadn't accepted it, I still, they, there would just be another excuse. There'd be another reason why the doctors can't be given their pay rise, you know? So this has provided kind of like a convenient narrative, but I think without it, that they wouldn't capitulate anyway, you know, it would just be, it would just be something else. And because there's so much inherent dishonesty, you know, um, that they would just create another, another narrative to justify why they're not, why they can't um, kind of uh, accept the doctor's demands. Next story. In the run-up to the next general election, both Labour and the Tories are competing on who can be toughest on crime. The latest iteration of that debate, sparked by Transport Minister Richard Holden, is about whether we should build more prisons to lock up shoplifters. And on The Jeremy Vine Show, that prompted a broader debate on the relationship between policing and crime. This is Grace Blakely debating Mike Parry. This idea that we could just stop crime by having more police on the streets is just demonstrably... Well, arrest we criminals. We know yeah. that it's not true. They are a deterrent. If you want to stop crime, you have to look at the root causes of crime. We've had for decades a long-term fall in violent crime until about five years ago when we started to see violent crime increase again. Now, why has that happened? It's because we are facing a bit of a social breakdown. That's not just because people have suddenly all gone mad. Mm. It's because there are really deep-rooted problems in our society, in things like, you know, the the children's social care system, around, you know, how we deal with youth Mm. offending, in education, in health. Mm. And that is, I think, the problem. Maybe, maybe, gosh. I'm old-fashioned, but in the year I was born, there was still rationing, Okay. Believe it or not, rationing after the Second World War. Nobody was going into <clears throat> co-op stores and stealing stuff in those days. And nobody had any food, nobody had any money. So, honestly... Yeah. But I think there it's is, there is actually me. a point there, right? Which is, there's yeah. a difference between there being scarcity and a sense that everyone's in it together. And then the, the, the situation we're in now, where you have extreme levels of inequality, where you have a few people at the very top who have everything they could ever want, and then a lot of people looking at that thinking, I can barely afford to eat. So why should I bother, like, you know, obeying the rules? You, you- I thought that was a really smart response there from from Grace to Mike Parry. I mean, in a way, there might be a simpler one. Like, are you sure no one shoplifted in the 1950s? Like, I would I would quite like to see some evidence for that claim. I'm sure um, that well, I suppose we're talking about the 1940s here because of rationing. But I'm I'm sure during that period of rationing, there were quite a lot of people stealing things. I mean, there was of course famously um, a very large black market. So the idea um, that no one used to commit crimes um, seems. A little bit silly to be. Um, overall, I, I think Grace's point there was was excellent, really well made. I slightly disagree with one thing, though. The first thing Grace said there, there is a bunch actually of good evidence that increasing the number of police does reduce to some extent violent crime. That doesn't mean we should necessarily do it, um, but I think on the left, we probably do need to at least admit it. Um, this is from a Vox article summarizing the data as it relates to the United States. A 2020 study published by the National Bureau of Economic Research concluded each additional police officer abates approximately 0.1 homicides. In per capita terms, effects are twice as large for black versus white victims. A 2005 study in the Journal of Law and Economics took advantage of surges in policing driven by terror alerts, finding that high alert periods when more officers were deployed led to significantly less crime. A 2016 
Dean study published by the Public Library of Science looked at what happened when more New York City police officers were deployed in high crime areas as part of an effort called Operation Impact, concluding these deployments were associated with less crime across the board. And now if results like that can be replicated in the UK, we would expect the cuts to policing during austerity to have had some effect on crime rates. And those cuts were big from 2010 onwards. Police budgets were cut by 20%. And the rate of reported crimes that went on to be solved completely collapsed. And these are how charge rates have changed for various types of reported crime since 2015. Now, this is pretty phenomenal. Um, So this is the Tories' record on crime, essentially. Um, So assault without injury, it used to be the case that 16% of, of reported crimes were went on to charge. It's now 3% assault with injury. It used to be the case that 25% of reported crimes went on to charge and prosecution. It's now only 5%. Now you can look at all different sorts of crime and the rate at which these are sold has absolutely collapsed. Um, Now one would expect um, that to decrease the deterrent effect of committing a crime, right? So if you have the police no longer solving crimes, one would expect that to, to some degree, um, mean that there is less of a deterrent to not do crime. So I slightly disagree with Grace on that point. One thing, though, where she is absolutely correct is that policing shouldn't be the main way of tackling crime. Inequality, as she says, is much more important. Now, this is a fascinating article in The Guardian from a year, a few years back, sorry, which Grace sent me, actually, um, summarising the research on this. So the headline here, the surprising factors driving murder rates, income, inequality, and respect. And it's by Maya Salovitz. She's got this inequality predicts homicide rates better than any other variable, says an expert. The article explains how it's a sense of low status on the part of a perpetrator that leads to much violent crime. Um, This is an example which the article gives. When someone bumps into someone on the dance floor, looks too long at someone else's girlfriend, or makes an insulting remark, it doesn't threaten the self-respect of people who have other types of status the way it can when you feel this is your only source of value. Now, I think that's really smart. That seems incredibly intuitive to me. I feel that in my own life. You know, sometimes you'll get disrespected in the street by someone and you might think, oh, I really need to respond to that. This is a real blow to, to how I feel about myself. But I get my you know, I get my sense of well-being, my sense of worth from other areas than how I'm treated on the street. This is not, you know, I'm not particularly treated particularly badly on the street. I don't think London is full of crime, as some people on Twitter might want you to think. Nick Timothy, one of them, in fact, just been selected as a Tory MP. But I do think that makes a big difference to how one responds to situations such as that. It's also um, intuitive that high levels of inequality and low levels of opportunity increase the number of people in this situation where you don't have many sources of of you know a, a sense of status, so you do react to what one might think of as minor things in such a way. The statistics also seems to back this up. So Salovitz writes this, according to the World Bank, a simple measure of inequality predicts about half of the variance in murder rates between American states and between countries around the world. When inequality is high and strips large numbers of men of the usual markers of status, like a good job and the ability to support a family, matters of respect and disrespect loom disproportionately. Inequality predicts homicide rates better than any other variable, says Martin Daly, Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Neuroscience at McMaster University in Ontario and author of Killing the Competition, Economic Inequality and Homicide. This includes factors like rates of gun ownership, which also rise when inequality does, and cultural traits like placing more emphasis on honour. This too turns out to be linked with 
inequality. And then there's a quote from Richard Wilkinson, author of The Spirit Level and co-founder of the Equality Trust. He says, about 60 academic papers show that a very common result of greater inequality is more violence, usually measured by homicide rates. Emma, what did you think of Grace's argument there? And where do you stand on, on this debate when crime perennially comes up in sort of public discourse? How do you tend to respond? There's like a UK study um, from 2011 called Police Police Numbers and Crime Rates. And they actually argue in that, that in the UK, the evidence is inconclusive to say that there's a strong association between um, police numbers and violent crime. There's a, They um, find that there's maybe a stronger correlation between police numbers and property crime, but they kind of find that it's it's it, the evidence is inconclusive to draw that strong correlation um, between police numbers and violent crime. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that inequality is one of the biggest, is one of the biggest drivers of crime. And many years ago, I I, uh, studied uh, violence, conflict and development. And when we were looking at, um, when we were looking at um, states, countries um, that had had, you know, very, very pronounced uh, violence, it was there was a far stronger correlation between um, contexts where there was sharp and vast inequality than where there was poverty. So poverty alone itself isn't a driver of violence in the same way as poverty um, uh, cheek to jowl with uh, wealth is. So there's very strong relationship between inequality and violence. And I think that's also fascinating um, that art, that Guardian article because I wasn't um, I've not uh, read it or or seen that before, but something that I've like spoken about, so like just speculatively, you know, kind of like anecdotally, not have nothing that I've researched or anything, but just in different um, social spheres that I have uh, been in, lived in. Um, I've definitely kind of speculated about that idea that um, how people behave in um, public in public space and the 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 value that is attached to kind of respect in public space um, does seem to really correlate with um, the arguments that are being made in that um, in that article and where people have less status. Um, certainly there, and again, this is just anecdotally, but something that I've, yeah, definitely witnessed and observed is that the kind of, um, social, the social relations in public space where there are lower status people, um, it, yeah, there's, there's, I've experienced, you know, kind of more, more violence. People can kind of afford to be more genteel, not because they're better people or nicer people, but because they don't have to necessarily assert themselves in public spaces like that because they have other spheres of influence and status. So I think that's fascinating that there's um, research that supports that. That's one article where I read it and I found it really, really like intuitive. It just made, made sense to me. And um, of course, it is important to keep this whole debate in perspective. When we hear that crime is soaring, um, that's often based on police records, which do um, show crime. Um, to be historically rather high. The problem with that, though, is that it's affected by how inclined people are to report crime and how the police decide to record them. So the Office for National Statistics suggests their police and crime survey is a better 
measure. Um, this graph from the time shows the difference the measure we use makes. So in yellow is the number of crimes reported to the police each year. As you can see, that was around 5 million per year in 2003 when these records began. Those numbers fell consistently until 2015 when they started to increase. Um, so reported crimes going up. The black line though shows how many crimes the Office for National Statistics think took place every year based on interviews they do with respondents. This is sort of a, a random survey that you do with a representative sample. Now, on that measure, crimes per year peaked at around 20 million in 1995 and has been declining ever since. So according to the ONS, that decline hasn't stopped. So whereas you see this uptick in reported crime, estimated crime based on interviews of people and surveys suggest it is still falling. Um, there were 5 million, or less than 5 million, in fact, estimated crimes in 2022. That's half the number um, that we had in 2010 and a quarter of the number in 1995. Emma, if the arrow is going in the right direction, you know, so if crime is going down, should we just forget about it? Whenever sort of a politician brings up crime on the telly, should we just say, look, it's falling. Stop with this fear-mongering. Um... No, I don't think we should just forget about crime. Uh, but at the same time, I find it like really alarming that both um, parties are using or are, are using um, kind of a fear of crime or this idea that they're tough on crime as one of their kind of like main campaigning campaigning tools. I think it's definitely you know just part of um, the dynamic of trying to. Um, blame the kind of most vulnerable people, vulnerable people in society for the kind of for the for the for the ills of society. So I think we really have to reconsider, um, like, kind of, yeah, how 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 we think and talk about crime, and the solutions to it, and the solutions to it. Um, yes, we can focus on crime, but I think the solutions should be very different to just this idea of cracking down on it and just um, having more police. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, I, I do think that, I mean, my question was, sort of, I suppose, meant to be a provocation because I don't think that crime falling means that you can say it doesn't matter. It's, it's a bit like, you know, when people say, oh, yeah, Britain might be racist, but there's a bunch more racist places in the world. It's like, why are we comparing ourselves to more racist places? If, if, if something is bad, we want to make sure it declines to an absolute minimum, not say, well, it could be worse and then sort of settle there. I also totally agree that sort of fear-mongering about crime and sort of suggesting, oh, crime is at an all-time high, it's out of control, is is incredibly unhelpful and normally is done for very cynical political reasons. Our final story. Nadine Doris announced her intention to resign over two months ago, but she still hasn't got around to doing it. Rishi Sunak was asked about that fact on LBC. Nathan says, what should happen to an MP who doesn't speak in Parliament in over a year and takes two months to officially resign? I think he might be talking about your colleague <laughs> Nadine Doris, who hasn't spoken since July of last year. Yeah, look, I, you know, your view of Nadine. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think people deserve to have uh, an MP that represents them wherever they are. And, you know, it's just making sure that your MP is engaging with you, representing you, whether that's speaking in Parliament or being present in their constituencies, doing surgeries, answering your letters. Uh, that's the job of an MP, and all MPs should be held to that standard. Uh, so uh, she's failing in that, isn't she? Well, at the moment, people aren't being properly represented. I think last time you were on this show with me, Emma, I sort of ended the show by saying how I somewhat aspire to be a little bit more like Nadine Doris. I kind of... I do recall. I'm on a, I'm, I'm on a similar wavelength here. I suppose not, because it is, you know, you should represent your constituents. But at the same time, the idea of saying you're going to resign, then not doing it and taking your salary for a while while not doing any work, it does have an inherent appeal to me. 
you're not an MP. I just think it's so undignified. Like I just um like her behavior is so undignified and it just um it's just another example of them just taking the piss like literally and just really like it's like she sees her responsibilities she sees her job clearly as just like a stepping stone to notoriety some other career media author whatever she clearly has like no interest no concern no respect a complete disregard for her constituents like it's just it's well it's it's very in keeping with um with the with the pm but it's just yeah it's it's literally it, it feels satirical i think i said that the last time i would like the first time i was on as well we were talking about nadine taurus and bishy sunak so it's very it's very a uh, groundhog day that i'm back <laughs> finishing with her again i should also reassure our audience of course navarra media is funded by the kind donations of our hard-working audience if I were to resign, which I have absolutely no plans to do, I would not sit on my ass for months on end um, taking home some of your donations as part of my salary. So do not worry. I, I shall be more honourable than Nadine Doris, even if um, sometimes I, 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 I do find her outrageousness has an element of charm to it. Um, one of my most unpopular opinions with our audience, um, which I think is probably warranted, in fact, I hate myself because of this opinion, which I just cannot get rid of. Um, Emma, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I'm glad I was prepared for your Nadine Doris, like, <laughs> adoration, because the last time it took me by surprise. Each show becomes a sort of a, a therapy session for me when it comes to Nadine Doris, because it makes me really doubt myself, but I just can't, I can't, I can't remove these urges. We are going to wrap up then. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.